Welcome to another edition of Northwestern Outdoors Radio, the award-winning show covering fishing, hunting, conservation, destinations, and other outdoors recreation across the greater Northwest. Northwestern Outdoors is brought to you by Max Lur, Sportsman's Warehouse, Sina Sea Seafood, and Wallowa County Chamber of Commerce in the Northern Pike Minnow Sport Reward Fishery Program. And now, let's see what's happening this week with your host, John Cruz. Welcome to the show. A lot of folks like to go to Montana for their deer and elk hunting, and for good reason. It can be pretty good, but it's still hunting and not harvesting. And I thought I would go ahead and share the opening weekend harvest data from Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks in north-central Montana. There was a check station set up in Augusta, and a total of 2,900 stopped there, which is a little bit lower than the 10-year average, but way more than the 164 hunters who stopped there the opening weekend last year. The overall harvest success rate for hunters for opening weekend this year was 19%, which was quite a bit better than the 14% success rate seen last year. Hunters checked in 15 elk at the station. That's about 30% above average for opening weekend. And again, way better than last year when only four elk were checked in. Mule deer and white-tailed deer harvest was 15%. The total number of deer checked in at the station was 23, which included some brought into the check station by youth hunters during the two-day youth deer season, just before the general rifle season opened. The general deer and elk season in this region runs through November 26th, so you still got plenty of time to get out there to north-central Montana for a deer or an elk, and with the rut coming on, this may be an excellent time to go. This week on the show, we've got some great guests for you. We're going to share some fishing reports from Oregon when we talk to Jeff Folkma at the Garibaldi Marina. Find out how the salmon fishing's going in Tillamook Bay and about how the crabbing's going too. And I'll give you a preview. The crabbing, it's really, really good right now. We'll also talk to Steve Fleming, the longtime owner of Maha Outfitters. He fishes the John Day River most of the time for smallmouth bass, but this time of year, he turns his attention to summer steelhead, and he's going to give you some tips on how to catch him out of that stream. Another person we'll talk to today is Brian Lynn. He's with the Sportsman's Alliance. And we'll be talking about anti-hunters with a petition to limit mountain lion and bear harvest in Washington State. Something that an anti-hunting leaning Fish and Wildlife Commission appointed by Governor Jay Inslee just might go for. A little worried about this one and Brian will explain why you should be worried too. Our Max Minute this week is going to be a past conversation we had with tournament angler Ted Beach. He's also a pro staffer for Max Lure about what kind of lures to use in the fall for walleye. I think you're going to get a lot out of this one. And we're going to finish things off talking to Roger Phillips of the Idaho Department of Fish and Game about two issues. Number one, the quagga mussels that were found in the Snake River near Twin Falls and what the state's doing about this situation. We'll also talk about walleye. Roger wrote a fascinating article on the subject of walleye in Idaho, why they're okay in some places, but definitely not okay in others. I think you're going to really get a lot out of this conversation about conservation. Last but not least, we've got our Sportsman's Warehouse trivia question of the week for you where you get the chance to win a $25 gift card from America's Premier Outfitter. Put it all together, we've got a great show coming your way. So let's kick it off with another edition of Sportsman Spotlight with David Sparks. Does a black bear look anything like a grizz? How about a moose versus an elk or a mule deer? This all sounds so very elementary. How is it possible that a sportsman hunting for one of these species could make a mistake on their identity? David Sparks, Sportsman Spotlight, 
and it turns out that that doesn't happen all that unusually. Fish and Game official Roger Phillips. Brush up on your wildlife identification skills. You hate to think someone would misinterpret a skunk for a mule deer. <laughs> what? How? Yeah. It didn't happen last year, but in the last few years back, we had several cases of moose being killed accidentally. And, you know, if you go up to the average person, you should say which is a moose and which is an elk on the street corner. You know, 10 out of 10, I would be willing to bet we'll get it right. But when you're out in the woods and you see a dark-colored animal with antlers moving through, whatever you're hunting, your brain kind of decides that's what it is. So people need to really be careful when they're out there. Identify your target. Make sure it's what you think it is, and then you're good to go. But, you know, you don't want to be one of those people making that phone call saying, sorry, I killed the wrong animal. You know, our officers would come out and investigate that. But, you know, we just don't want people to be in that situation. So make sure you know your target. That's the key message there. Try not to get buck fever. Start firing at everything. Exactly. So be absolutely certain about your opportunity. You've probably been told that to reach a millennial farmer, you have to go digital. Hmm. Facebook, Vimeo, YouTube, Instagram, Pinterest, LinkedIn, an online publication, or maybe a podcast. Hmm. But which one? Oh, and how receptive is this age group to your sales pitch during non-work social time? Maybe the best place to reach a farmer with a farming solution message is when they are, well, quite frankly, farming. You know, it's easy for us to find them during the day as most farmers are behind the wheel of a pickup truck or farm equipment with the radio on listening to this station for the Ag Information Network of the West News. If you'd like to deliver information about your terrific product or service, give us a call and we'll connect you directly with our community of loyal farmer listeners. Reach real farmers right here, right now, as they listen to what is important to their farm operation. They trust us, they'll trust you. Natural wonders, beaches and coves, majestic forests and scenic vistas are waiting for you at the Tillamook Coast. Lace up your hiking boots and come to Northwest Oregon. Find out more at TillamookCoast.com. Welcome back to Northwestern Outdoors Radio. Our next stop is the John Day River in eastern Oregon. Arguably one of the best rivers when it comes to fishing and scenery and wildlife watching. And with us here to tell you more about some opportunities right now is longtime guide Steve Fleming, the owner of Maha Outfitters. Steve, it's great to have you back on the air. Hey, great to talk with you again, John. I know you spend a lot of time fishing for smallmouth bass on the John Day, but you've turned your attention to steelhead, and looking at the numbers over Bonneville Dam, looks like we're looking at about the best run that we've had in, what, seven years or so? Yeah, yeah, it's looking really good for the native steelhead return in particular. Of course, that's all the John Day has. No hatchery fish in the John Day, whether it be salmon or steelhead. And so, yeah, the numbers are good. It was a little slow turning on. The water was a little warm and just started to cool off in the last week. And I went out the last two days, and we were hitting fish, pretty good numbers of fish each day as far as takedowns and stuff. So, yeah, fish are looking good. Now, I know you've got a, a wonderful drift boat that you operate out of. How do you go about catching fish on the John Day? It is a, a much smaller stream than most people are used to when it comes to steelhead fishing. 
Yeah, well, years ago, the Lamb and Glass Protein came up, and they showed me their favorite way, and it really works good on the John Day, and it's just bobber and shrimp fishing, steelhead candy. All right, so you're fishing shrimp under a float. Are you fishing this with a jig, too? No, I'm not. Not with a jig, just the shrimp itself. I'll be darned. Okay. And any dyed colors in particular that seem to work better than others? Well, of course, most of them are dyed red, and red does work well. I don't have extremely clear water right now, but if it was like gin clear water, I'd be better off to go to the purple color. And what part of the John Day River are you fishing for steelhead this time of year? Uh, The Cottonwood uh, Bridge area, because uh, that's down low. That's 41 miles from the Columbia. And so they're just, they're coming through now. They're just starting up. So that's the best place probably for me to be now. Later on in February, January, February, I'll be fishing up above spray. And these are all summer steelhead. Are we talking six, eight pounders on average? Yeah, yes. Well, we have one four pounder in the mix, but yeah, pretty much. There was one 10 pounder in the mix the last couple of days. But I think that six pounds is probably a pretty safe number to go for. Steve, what else should folks know about fishing the John Day for steelhead? Well, there's one tip, and I I hesitate to pass this on because this is like the tip of all tips, but fishing with coon shrimp uh, and uh, under a bobber and, you know, a number two or number four red hook is all you need, except for the magic ingredient, as well taught to me by uh, Jason Hamley years ago. It is garlic scent. I ever took him down the river. They had it. We had 17 takedowns and 14 hookups, and we would have landed all of them probably, but they were trying to film tail walking, so they were pushing on the fish really hard once they got them hooked up. But at any rate, of course, obviously, poker sure has garlic, but I've been using smelly jelly liquid garlic for years now, ever since I got that little experience with Jason, and it's a liquid. Both of them, Procure and, and smelly jelly are both liquid. You just put it on. That is a great tip. Thanks for sharing that. Got to ask you, it is November. Has the smallmouth bass bite completely died off at this point? Oh, no. It will die off this week because of the little fish will go inactive at 48 degrees when the river's going down in temperature. And we are at 48 degrees right now on the surface. And so the little dinks that nobody wants to mess with it so much, you know, those are going to go inactive. And so the bigger fish, 10% of the population, the breeding fish, they'll still be active. Okay. And they'll be fairly active until it gets down below 40. Good to know. Well, folks, if you want to go fishing on a very picturesque stream, uh, consider going fishing with Steve Fleming on the John Day River, and especially this area by Cottonwood Canyon State Park. It's one of my favorite places to go. I mean, there's tons of wildlife out there. You're going to see deer, good chance you're going to see bighorn sheep. Uh, You might see some other critters as well out there. And it's just a beautiful section of the river to fish. And Steve really knows how to fish it, I can tell you from personal experience. What's the website folks should go to, or how can they contact you? Well, the website is pretty simple. It's, you know, like www.johndayriverfishing.com. That's about as easy as it gets. johndayriverfishing.com. That's the website for Maha Outfitters and Steve Fleming. Yeah. johndayriverfishing.com. And look for Maha Outfitters on Facebook as well. And book your summer steelhead trip on the John Day River today. Steve, thanks for the report. Hey, thank you for calling me, buddy. Always good to talk with you. Likewise. Next up, we've got Jeff Polk on the line at the Garibaldi Marina in Tillamook Bay in northwest Oregon for a fishing and crabbing report. Jeff, great to have you back on the air. Hey, glad to be back. How are you doing? 
I'm doing well, but I am curious about the salmon fishing and the crabbing. We'll start off with the Chinook and Coho. Are they all in the bay right now? And if so, how's the fishing? Well, you can only fish for coho for hatchery fish inside the bay. The coho is closed in the ocean completely, and uh, we're done with the uh, the wild coho. You could only get them on Wednesdays and Saturdays, and that was only till the 18th. So there's a few coho left in the bay, but not a tremendous amount. They're usually through by this time every year. Well, let's talk about crabbing. I know a lot of people kind of hang up their crab rings and crab pots as we get into fall, but I understand this could be a pretty good time of year. The crabbing has been over the top. I've been here since 1989, and this has been the best crabbing that I've seen since we've taken over the marina. Our little rental boats go out, and in three hours they'll come back, you know, with three limits of crab, and everybody's having a good time. They're good and, and solid crab. And they've just been just a ton. I can't believe it. Not only that, but your limit, your daily limit for Dungeness crab is a lot better than what they have in Washington State. What is the Oregon limit? Uh, 12. Male Dungeness, minimum five and three quarters across the back. That's a lot of good tasting crab. All right, last yeah. but not least, what about salmon and steelhead in the rivers around Tillamook Bay? You know, I don't hear a tremendous amount from the other end of the bay. But there was, about a week ago, there was a good flurry of fish up in Tidewater there. And that's when the bar was breaking so heavy that there wasn't a whole lot of fish coming through, and they were kind of stacked up down at the other end. I had a friend that went out yesterday. The bar finally went out, and he had one Chinook behind the South Jetty and unfortunately had an old leader, and it snapped on him. Oh, no. And he did get, uh, got a 15-pound coho out there, and, of course, he had to let it go, so... He ended his season with a fish that he had to let go. All right. Well, it sounds like if you want to go crabbing, Tillamook Bay is the place to go. And if you need a boat to rent or eat some gear to rent, just go to the Garibaldi Marina. You can check out their website at garibaldimarina.com. And if you're looking for places to stay or charters to book with, check out tillamookcoast.com. Jeff, thanks as always. This portion of the show was brought to you by our friends at Cena Sea Seafood. And with the holiday season approaching, you might want to do something a little different and serve up some delicious wild-caught Alaskan seafood for Thanksgiving or Christmas or Veterans Day or any other special event you've got coming up before the end of the year. You can just go to cenasea.com, that's S-E-N-A-S-E-A, cenasea.com, and order meal-sized portions of salmon, halibut, lingcod, and more that'll be delivered right to your doorstep. The website again, cenasea.com. Order now for an unforgettable premium wild-caught seafood eating experience. Come to Oregon's Wallowa County for outdoors adventure. Hike, ride, paddle, fish, or sightsee to your heart's content. And then visit one of our wonderful towns, whether it be Joseph with its beautiful bronze statues, our county seat in Enterprise, or one of our charming small towns like Wallowa, Imnaha, or Troy, where you can eat, shop, and sleep before continuing your adventure the next day. Plan your visit now at WallowaCountyChamber.com. That's WallowaCountyChamber.com. 
Did you know we actually have a sponsorship opportunity available for this show? That's right. You can be a sponsor of Northwestern Outdoors Radio, reaching thousands of listeners every week, tuning in to 69 stations in seven states. If you have a business that caters to outdoors enthusiasts, this is the platform for you, and you're going to find it's much more affordable than you think. Contact me through my website at northwesternoutdoors.com, and let's get a conversation started. That's northwesternoutdoors.com. Welcome back to Northwestern Outdoors Radio and to an extended Max Minute brought to you by Max Lur. It's time for another Max Minute, and with us today is Ted Beach. He's a longtime pro staffer and a tournament angler based in the Tri Cities of Washington. Ted, it's great to have you on the air. Thanks a lot, John, for having me. I appreciate it. Well, Ted ran into you over at Potholes Reservoir the other day and, you know, got me to thinking if I was going to ask one person how to fish lakes in the fall, whether it be Fort Peck Reservoir in Montana, Boysen Reservoir in Wyoming, or Potholes Reservoir in eastern Washington, uh, what's a technique you would suggest people use for success this time of year? First of all, John, I, I want to say be cautious out there with your boats because these waters are low right now. Potholes are probably down 20-plus feet. But anyway, with that, I would use what I call the fall colors. Those colors are red, dark greens, black, some brown. Pretty much basically the colors of the leaves that change in the fall. Use a slow-death hook, and uh, Max has a great product. It's a super slow-death, already rigged up, uh, motor oil blade on it would work great right now interesting so you know i'm just listening to you we're not talking big flash we're not talking chrome here necessarily we're talking more muted colors i presume they are matching the forage base in these lakes correct john correct what i found was this time of year in the fall the uh, bait that has hatched in the spring and that are getting a little bigger their colors are changing, so I just try to match the hatch. And by doing that, like I said, I use the fall colors. I go by basically the leaf colors. All right. Well, if you want success this fall for walleye, again, no matter what lake you're fishing, give Ted's advice a try. Match the hatch. Go for some of these colors that are not necessarily the ones you would use at other times of year. and You might be in for some great fishing. You can find out more about Max Lure products at maxlure.com. Ted, good luck with that tournament you're fishing this weekend. Hope you're a big winner. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Take care. I'm Bob Loomis and I fish for walleye. Sometimes when I'm out on the water I feel like a destroyer captain hunting for targets with my electronics. I'm not hunting submarines though, I'm hunting fish, and when I find that big one on the fish finder, I want to make sure she's going to bite. That's where the Smile Blade Slow Death Rig from Max Lure comes in. The Smile Blade spins and flashes at ultra slow speeds, and the one of a kind red hook keeps that bait moving in a way the fish can't resist. It's the Smile Blade Slow Death Rig. You're the destroyer, this is your depth charge. Only from Max Lure. Sportsman's Warehouse is America's premier outfitter with the gear you need for fishing, hunting, camping, paddling, cooking, and just about anything else you can do in the woods or in the water. With over 125 stores across America, there is bound to be a Sportsman's Warehouse near you with not only the gear you need, but also the experts to help you get the most out of the product you purchase. Head down to your local Sportsman's Warehouse today or shop online anytime at sportsmans.com. That's sportsmans.com. Backcountryhunters.org. Join the fight for our public lands and waters today. 
You're back in with Northwestern Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz. We got Brian Lynn on the line. He's with the Sportsman's Alliance. That's the organization that looks out after our rights when it comes to hunters and shooters. And once again, the Washington State Fish and Wildlife Commission is in the headlines because they're considering a petition that's going to further restrict mountain lion and bear hunting in the Evergreen State. Brian, welcome back to the show. Thanks, John. Great to be here. So tell me about this petition and what these groups want the commission to do. Yeah, so this came out uh, yesterday. It hit that the Center for Biological Diversity and the Humane Society of the United States, the Mountain Lion Foundation, kind of your your typical characters that we see in this kind of stuff. They have hundreds of millions of dollars. They're joined by in-state groups like the Kettle Range, Washington Wildlife First, you know, these smaller kind of offshoot groups that they all have the same thing in common. Stop hunting, do it, you know, through the courts, through the ballot box, whatever. They have put a petition forward, a legal petition forward to uh, roll back the rules that the commission passed almost unanimously in 2019 and 2020 concerning two bear harvest and mountain lion hunting. They want the equation for mountain lion hunting, how they do the mortality equations to change and to count every animal that's killed for any reason, which gets a bit fuzzy into the biology of kittens and survival rates. And then you get into the black bear stuff. They want one black bear per hunter per season statewide, even if there's needs increased harvest someplace not going to do two bears anymore, and they want to shorten the season by a month. Wow. So Washington State has a robust black bear population, and despite that, the Fish and Wildlife Commission canceled the spring bear hunt, and there's only a fall bear hunt now. Meanwhile, when it comes to cougar population also increasing, we've actually seen several cougar attacks in recent years that have either resulted in injuries or, in in one case, a death in Washington State. And we've got the Blue Mountain Herd of elk, which is literally being decimated by cougars, and yet they want less hunting. Tell me how this makes sense. (laughs) Well, from people who actually care about wildlife and actively manage it, it doesn't make any sense. This falls right into their paradigm, into their ideological beliefs that man doesn't belong on the landscape, that we don't need hunting to manage wildlife. They believe the predators will manage the ungulate herds and kind of it will trickle down from there, which we all know, given the size of our cities and farms and everything else, isn't going to work. It actually amplifies everything now, so it just doesn't make sense. It's going to decimate deer and elk herds, other prey species, as the predators' populations get larger and larger. And then when there's no food, predators don't like to starve, so they turn to other sources of food, and that usually ends up being livestock, pets, or people. Right. Absolutely right. And you know... If this would have happened five years ago, I would have said this petition had no chance, but the makeup of the Fish and Wildlife Commission, appointed by Jay Inslee, has taken a very left-leaning and anti-hunting stance. There's several commissioners that will probably be really okay with this petition. Who are they and why? Oh, yeah. Like, normally you would say, no, this doesn't stand a chance. But with this commission, 
I've heard people say 50-50. I'm not even giving it 50-50. I'm saying it's going to be 7-2, to two, maybe 6-9 to nine on the vote. Because we have seen these people, Lorna Smith, Barbara Baker, Melanie Rowland, John Lemkuehl. You know, these commissioners have literally sat up there and parroted the talking points from the Humane Society of the United States when it comes to bear hunting, when it comes to mountain lions. They have literally held a piece of paper and read the talking points word from word from the HSUS. So these guys are just doing the bidding of the Center for Biological Diversity, Humane Society, and all these other anti-hunting groups. They're on board with them. Inslee appointed them. There's no way to get them off until another governor takes them off, and which probably isn't going to happen because the Attorney General's office in Ferguson is probably going to take Inslee's place is right behind this, and everybody's walking in lockstep. I said it over a year ago. This is a cabal. This is a political cabal that runs from the governor through the attorney general down to the commission. Speaking of the attorney general, the Sportsman's Alliance sued Commissioner Lorna Smith because you're only supposed to hold one office at a time. She is not only a Fish and Wildlife Commissioner, she is also on the Jefferson County Planning Commission, and the Attorney General's office has got involved. They won't get involved with the huge crime issues that are taking place in Washington State, but they seem to want to get involved with this. Yeah, this was really unbelievable. We sued Lorna Smith as a citizen of Washington, not as a game commissioner. She, as an individual, is holding two elective or appointive offices, which is illegal. It's it just it's in black and white in the RCWs. Took her to court. The attorney general's office said they would defend her. So the state taxpayers' money are going to defend her. We went to court. We won. The judge said, yep, you guys figure this out. Come out to a settlement. We, everybody, all parties agreed to, okay, resign the Jefferson County position. She did. In her letter, she hinted at appealing and that she would like her position back. Sure enough, about a week later, the Attorney General said that they were going to appeal it. It is now going to the Washington State Supreme Court, where we will see what happens. But at $500 an hour, the state attorneys are defending Lorna Smith for no reason. They don't have to, but they are. It sure would be nice if the state attorney general's office would actually focus on things they're supposed to focus on, as opposed to things that seem politically expedient to focus on. But that's a topic for a different show, I'm guessing. All right, so another question. John Lemkul, he gets really upset when you go ahead and paint him as a, a non-scientific commissioner because he, he touts his background as a biologist. He says he's a hunter. He says he's an angler, but he doesn't vote like that. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, this is where you get into, I was having this discussion yesterday, science and math, for as concrete as they are, are pliable. It depends which variables you plug into the equation of what you're going to get. And which variables you choose often depends on your ideology. You know, so if you're looking at it from a preservationist standpoint and then the ecological school of ecology that they teach nowadays in a lot of places instead of game management is that you need to do X, Y, and Z. So they believe you need to put in different variables and therefore you come out with the result that the other side is coming out with, the preservationist side is coming out with. And so he might be a hunter or he might have killed one elk. I don't know. I saw him with a picture with one elk. So I don't know if that constitutes being a hunter or not. But the voting he's doing falls in lockstep with the preservationist mentality. And he's going right along with the people who are blatantly pro preservationist of big predators, bears, mountain lions, you know, Lorna Smith, Barbara Baker, Melanie Rowland. They're point blank 
not hiding it, and he falls right in a lockstep with them. So you can say what you want, but your actions speak louder than words. One other topic I'd like to tackle, but I don't have a lot of time to do so, grizzly bear reintroduction into North Cascades National Park. It's favored by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the National Park Service. What's the stance of the Sportsman's Alliance on this? you got about 30 seconds to explain it. Well, they should start by asking the citizens of Washington State if they even want grizzly bears up in this area. Nobody's asked us. The feds are just saying you're getting them. And every option they have, even the no option piece, is still action that will close public grounds and bring grizzly bears back. All right, folks, if you want to find out more about all these topics and a whole bunch more, go to sportsmansalliance.org. That's the website for the Sportsman's Alliance. And consider joining this group that is working to protect our rights as hunters, not only in the Northwest, but across America. Brian, thanks as always. Thank you, John. Enjoy a meal of wild Alaskan seafood delivered right to your door. Sina Sea offers premium quality wild Alaskan fish and shellfish to include Copper River King and Silver Salmon, Halibut, Black Cod, King Crab, and of course, Copper River Sockeye Salmon. Order it blast frozen or smoked and experience a slice of Alaska for a special meal you won't forget. Buy your seafood now at SinaSea.com. That's S-E-N-A-S-E-A, SinaSea.com. Hi, I'm Brandon Bates. You know, we hunters appreciate the animals that we pursue in a way that non-hunters will just never understand. We also protect their habitat. That's why the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation alone has conserved more than five and a half million acres of prime elk country and torn down over 600,000 acres of no trespassing signs. But we're losing vital habitat every day and we need your help. If you haven't gotten on board yet, you ought to. Call 1-800-CALL-ELK or visit elkfoundation.org. You're back in with Northwestern Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz. It's time for our monthly check-in with the Idaho Department of Fish and Game because there's always so much going on in the gem state when it comes to fishing, hunting, and conservation. With us again, Roger Phillips, the Public Information Supervisor for Idaho Fish and Game. Roger, welcome back. Always a pleasure to be here, John. So let's talk about a, a topic that's been getting a lot of press and for good reasons. Quagga mussels in the Mid-Snake River have shown up. This is a pretty big deal. And for our listeners who don't understand why quagga mussels are a bad thing, why don't you explain why? Well, it is a bad situation. And this is one of those invasive species that we have boat check stations for throughout the state. The mussels themselves aren't like toxic or anything like that, what they do is just kind of take over everything. They attach to everything and create a lot of problems, and eventually they can change that aquatic habitat to what fish would do, might be doing thriving in there now, would not do as well later. So there's a lot of factors that come into play, but this is one that crosses all boards because when you talk about quaggas getting into irrigation systems, into hydropower onto boats and into other waters, you have a real problem that has to just be stopped as immediately and as in finite of an area as possible so that this doesn't spread. And your agency is taking some pretty aggressive action to combat this. What have they done? Yeah, the Department of Agriculture has the lead on this invasive species. 
And what they have done is put a copper solution in a portion of the Snake River to kill these things. And unfortunately, it kills other things as well. Obviously, fish is a big one. If anybody knows anything about copper, fish don't like it. We uh, had a large fish loss because of this, probably in the thousands or tens of thousands of fish in this particular stretch of water, including sturgeon, which, you know, we, we hate to see that for obvious reason. Very long-lived fish takes a long time to get established. But on sort of a brighter, if there is such a thing here, is that the majority of the fish kill that we saw was non-game and some non-native carp. Pike minnow suckers made up the bulk of this. We're not naive. We know that there were some game fish as well, probably some bass, some panfish in there. So, yeah, we saw some losses. Another a, a real kind of glimmer of hope here. The bass seem to get away from this stuff. And when we were picking up some of the dead fish, we actually saw some bass swimming around after this stuff had gotten diluted. So we have a little glimmer of hope that maybe the bass weren't hit as hard as some of the other fish. And the other, I wouldn't call it a silver lining, but the sturgeon that we've recovered, last I heard it was less than 50 of them. Those were of hatchery origins, so we will be able to go back and replant some of those fish, and obviously sturgeon are pretty slow growing, but we think we can recover from this, and hopefully with most fish sooner rather than later, or I should say in a reasonable amount of time. How large of an area of the Snake River was treated, and exactly where on the Snake River is this? Is it near Twin Falls? Yeah, right there near Twin Falls in about a six-mile section of river. And that was for the, you know, the major treatment area. We know that things run down, the water goes downhill, and that copper just doesn't magically leave as soon as it's outside the area that we want treated. But kind of, a, again, I, I hate to use the term silver lining, but one benefit Right downstream up here is where we have Thousand Springs coming in. We have a whole bunch of water coming in from the side that dilutes that stuff. There is not a human health issue here. And so we feel like we are able to, not we, but the treatment of this was in a fairly confined area, and we're hopeful that it's going to accomplish what it needed to do there and not have huge effects downstream. Was there any mortality to... Birds or mammals that call that no, area no, the Snake River home? Not that we have seen so far. And even in the, the area with the, you know, the, the, they really focused the treatment on, it was still below drinking water or within drinking water standards. I think most of us don't drink from the Snake River. There's no, you know, <laughs> m- municipal water pulled out of there. So this is, you know, it, it's fairly low levels for mammals, birds, other things. Fishers are the ones who would have the, the bad reaction to it as in dying. Was this portion of the Snake River closed to hunters and anglers? And if so, has it reopened? Yes, it was. A portion of it has been reopened to hunters and anglers, actually. They probably wouldn't want to fish in this area. The one thing that we want to really, really reiterate is if you use this area, anything that comes in contact with it needs to be cleaned and dried and let it rest and so that you know, we're not possibly spreading these things to other waters. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's change topics and talk about another species of fish, and that would be the walleye. You wrote a really interesting article about walleye in Idaho, and I'll be honest, 
I have always thought that our Pacific Northwest fisheries managers have had a real bias against walleye in favor over cold water fish like trout, salmon, and steelhead. And you kind of dispel some of that. You also clarify the state's stance on this too. So let's start off with the places where you have walleye and you want to have walleye. What are the three bodies of water in Idaho? Oneida Reservoir. Salmon Falls Creek Reservoir and Oakley Reservoir, and those are all in the Magic Valley region. And those are also closed systems, so we can, you know, be pretty confident that fish that go into those walleye that are that live there are not going to naturally migrate into other areas where we don't want them. And let's talk about a couple places where you don't want them. One of them is Ponderay Lake. Another one, and I didn't even know this happened. I understand bucket biologists introduce walleye into Lake Lowell. Yes. Yeah, and that's where, you know, we've been seeing walleye pop up onesie twosies in several different places in southern Idaho, and it can literally be a couple of years before we see them. We went down below Lake Lowell, which is largely an irrigation reservoir. We did some fish sampling, and we're also planning to transplant some fish that wash out of the reservoir. They're in a canal system that's about to dry up. We were taking that opportunity to go transplant some of those game fish to ponds, to other things, to, to, you know, rejuvenate some of those, to add to the, the catchable fish population. And we discovered about 30 walleye. And it sent up the big alarm bells because that probably, and, and two age classes, so probably not just purely bucket biology with those exact fish, probably some production in that lake of walleye. And yeah, we're really concerned about this and we have to figure out what's going on there. And back to your other point about bias against, we don't have a bias against walleye, but we want to have them where it's intelligent to put them there and also where anglers want or don't want them there because we are listening to our anglers and they are telling us what they want and walleye is awfully low on the list. So that's kind of the, the short version of this. We've, we've always tried to pay attention to what our anglers want and provide opportunity where we can, but everything can't be everywhere. You know, I had a very interesting conversation several years ago with a man named Jim Kalkofen. He's with TargetWalleye.com, and he's from the Midwest. And we were talking on the Columbia River one day, and he's like, I can't figure you guys out, because in the Midwest, in the Great Lakes, we can manage for cold water fish like salmon and steelhead and trout and also have walleye and bass. And it seems to be an either-or situation in the Pacific Northwest. Why don't you explain why that's true or not true? Yeah, well, there is a definitely an element of truth to that, and they can manage it over there. And this is speaking in very broad strokes, but at the same time, what they also have back there is these very large prolific populations of bait fish, which is your minnows and your chubs and things like that. Small fish that are great prey for walleye and other things. What we have in the Northwest is quite often baby game fish. And that's what those walleye are going to be preying on. And where we have some of the non-game fish, you have your carp and your suckers and your pike minnows and things like that. People say, well, they can eat those. Well, yeah, they can until those fish get to maybe about a year or two old, and then they're too large for those fish to eat. Now you've got a bunch of big fish that are all trying to find something to eat, and that usually comes at the expense of the small fish, which are the game fish as well. So one of those populations isn't going to hold up when you have two game species that are feeding on the young of the other ones, 
And quite often, frankly, walleye seem to win out in these situations. They seem to prey real well on young trout, on young perch, on young crappie, things like that. And I guess there isn't a kind of a reciprocal there. So they tend to win out and they tend to dominate at the loss of these other fish. Now, again, that's in broad strokes, but that's kind of what we've experienced in Idaho or seen in Idaho and in some of our neighboring states. So many more questions, but we are out of time, so we'll have to leave it at that. But always appreciate the conversation, Roger. Fascinating discussion today. Well, it's always great to talk to you about these things, John. Immerse yourself in a complete Alaska wilderness experience through Sportsman's Cove Lodge. Up to six of you will spend a week in a beautiful waterfront log home in a secluded cove. Every day is a new adventure. Go on a guided fishing trip or haul in a bounty of shrimp and crab. Visit a Native American village where totem poles are carved. Go on a whale or bear watching trip and return back to your very own place at the end of the day. Find out more about the Alaska wilderness experience at alaskasbestlodge.com. That's alaskasbestlodge.com. Come explore the Dalles in Oregon for outdoors fun. Hike amongst the wildflowers, bike our riverfront trail, or visit the Gorge Discovery Center where you can enjoy a live raptor display. Or even check out our National Neon Sign Museum. But don't forget the fishing. We've got salmon, steelhead, bass, walleye, and monster-sized sturgeon waiting just for you. When the day is done, tell those tall tales at one of our wineries, breweries, or restaurants and plan your next adventure. Find out more at explorethedalles.com. Did you know we actually have a sponsorship opportunity available for this show? That's right. You can be a sponsor of Northwestern Outdoors Radio, reaching thousands of listeners every week, tuning in to 69 stations in seven states. If you have a business that caters to outdoors enthusiasts, this is the platform for you, and you're going to find it's much more affordable than you think. Contact me through my website at northwesternoutdoors.com, and let's get a conversation started. That's northwesternoutdoors.com. Sportsman's Warehouse is America's premier outfitter and has what you need as a hunter, angler, hiker, paddler, camper, and outdoors enthusiast. They also carry an extensive assortment of firearms and ammunition you simply can't find anymore at many big box stores. On top of that, their knowledgeable staff is here to help you purchase the right gear so you can get the most out of your outdoor experience. Visit your local Sportsman's Warehouse store today or shop online anytime at sportsmans.com. Before we go today, we've got time for one last shot of Northwestern Outdoors Radio with your host, John Cruz. I'm glad you're back because it's time for your Sportsman's Warehouse Trivia Question of the Week. And this week, your question is about cold weather. It can get very cold in the winter here in the Northwest and... In case you didn't know it, the lowest recorded temperature in the United States was recorded in one of our northwestern states. It was 70 degrees below zero. It occurred on Rogers Pass, and that's your question. What state is Rogers Pass located in? Is it in Idaho? Is it in Montana? Or is it in Wyoming? 
If you know the answer, you know what to do. Just go to our website at northwesternoutdoors.com. Shoot us an email and give us your answer there. Or you can shoot me an email at john at northwesternoutdoors.com and give me your answer that way. Again, the lowest temperature ever recorded in the lower 48 states was at Rogers Pass, 70 degrees below zero. And the question is, what state is Rogers Pass located in? Again, your choices are Montana, Idaho, or Wyoming. One lucky person who guesses right gets a $25 gift card that you can use at a Sportsman's Warehouse store near you, and you might want to use that for some warm clothing for the winter ahead. And on that note, it is time to go. But I hope you get out there for a little bit of hunting or fishing or hiking or wildlife watching in the days ahead. It might be November, but it's still a good time to do all of the above. Until next time, do take care, God bless, and make it a point to spend some time outdoors. 